Welcome to the Total Brain podcast series, hosted by Dr. Evian Gordon, founder and chief medical officer of Total Brain. Today's podcast is on what's new in collaborative care for depression. And it is my great pleasure to have as our guest today, Dr. Richard Stramko, who practices geriatric and internal medicine at St. Peter's and Jarevinsky Hospitals in Hamilton, Ontario. He is an assistant professor at McMaster University and the current chief medical officer of Kerner Health. He also co-founded an online education platform called iGeriCare to help caregivers of patients with dementia, which has been funded by Centers for Aging and Health Innovation and the Alzheimer's Society. His passion is making solutions that are simple, intuitive, and cost-effective for healthcare providers, patients, and their families. And it's a really great pleasure to speak to you today, Rich. Hi, Avian. It's a pleasure being here as well, speaking with a an academic such as yourself, but also uh, an entrepreneur who's so active in the neurosciences space. Well, Rich, today, this is an extraordinary, timely opportunity in my view. You know, we all know the magnitude of the problem of depression is overwhelming. You know, the 264 million people suffer from depression, the the 800,000 suicides a year, 7% of the population have a depressive episode per year. And we all know that the complexity is daunting, but this is a new era. And I was really amazed when I saw, to be honest, you know, Kerner Health and what your founder, Andreas Tipaldos and uh, Crystal Law have done here in terms of bringing the sort of seamlessness of collaborative care in a way I've never seen before. So uh, just before we go to the sort of meat of the podcast is, which is I'd like you to take us through use cases for somebody with depression of the value of collaborative care in depression, in depression with cardiac disease, in depression with Alzheimer's, in depression with multiple comorbidities, multiple disorders. And let's go through those one by one, Rich. But before we do, I'd really appreciate you spending a couple of minutes on just telling our listeners what is collaborative care and how did Kerner do this? It's a great question. I think it it's really starting now that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid are starting to realize the limitations of the current pattern of practice in terms of a patient showing up once to a mental health care provider, perhaps seeing them once every three months or six months. But there's a lot that happens to that patient every day and every week that a one-off doctor's appointment can't solve for. And so the model of care is that there's a mental health care provider that could be a social worker, let's say, in the community that's able to follow up with the person that has mental health issues on a regular basis. Instead of just asking them about their symptoms in a one-off basis, they're able to administer structured 
reliable and valid surveys to them to track the severity of symptoms over time. They're able to make referrals to that person in the community. So let's say the person's having a mental health crisis and are, perhaps they're having suicidal thoughts. They're able to triage them and get them the appropriate supports and care. They're able to provide them with educational resources so that they don't feel alone or isolated. And you know how overwhelming it can be when somebody has to read everything about a disease. There's usually a specific problem that needs to get solved for that patient. And so this collaborative health worker in the community can provide focused and specific education. And they're working in collaboration with the physician as well. So it's not like the physician is uninvolved or the psychiatrist is uninvolved. This collaborative worker keeps everybody in the loop and just has more close contact and consistent contact with that patient in the community. So it's really a revolutionary model of care that we've not seen before and has not been funded before as well. So so this is unique, that funding for this kind of seamlessness where you're sort of bringing together the personalized treatment plan, the automation, the scalability, the affordability, you're making it engaging, and that's funded, that's reimbursed. Yeah, so there are billing codes for behavioral health integration and collaborative care management. One of them is just with a social worker and the other is involving the social worker or other mental health professional, the psychiatrist and the primary care physician. And this is happening in parallel with similar models being implemented for people that have multi-morbid states like diabetes and heart failure as well. It's called chronic care management. And there's also codes that are applied to monitoring physiologic data remotely, so such as blood pressure or uh, capillary blood glucose levels. So it's, it's a fascinating time to provide all of these benefits to patients in their homes. So somehow Kerner Health has seamlessly put all this together. Obviously fascinating that there's now the means to fund this. So the scale of it is daunting too. I mean, how many patients are there at the moment in Kerner Health? We're uh, contracted for over 100,000 patients right now. Okay. So that is fascinating. And it is, in my mind, this, as you know, having set up a standardized applied integrative neuroscience database, it's about application. But it took 40 years after that was set up to come across the actual application done. And it's just incredible to see that this is no longer just theory, that it's actually happening. And we had, of course, delighted to be able to support that in whatever way we can. Uh, And it's just been amazing to begin to work with Kerner Health. So can we go through, Rich, four maybe use cases, one at a time maybe, Spelling out to people at one example at a time, what is the specific benefit of collaborative care if I'm an elderly person just with sort of standard depression? Right. So uh, depression in older people can look similar to depression in younger people, but it can also present atypically as well. So if people feel sad or low for a period of time, they remove themselves from pleasurable activities, they may eat less or eat too much. Oftentimes, though, people will, uh, when they're older, complain more somatic symptoms, so physical pain. They also might ruminate on death frequently or act as though they're going to give some of their possessions away. 
So you need to monitor it a little bit differently and be aware of how it might be different than younger people. But it's treated the same with respect to medications in terms of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or other classes of medication. And older people with depression respond quite well. So collaborative care in that sense is the doctor is going to prescribe the medication, but being able to monitor for medication side effects can be done with collaborative care, as well as medication interactions if medications are changed in the community. Providing education to that patient for the side effects so that they don't just stop their medication. Cold turkey, if something happens and they feel a little bit scared, they can be guided through it. But we know that the non-pharmacologic interventions, such as cognitive behavioral therapy or problem-solving therapy, are equally as effective as medications. And so this is a huge element that we struggle with in clinic in that, you know, it's great that it works, but finding scalable resources or resources that we can deliver to the patient as soon as they need them, that's the hard part. It's hard to find uh, CBT practitioners or enough of those practitioners to be able to provide sufficient care in numbers to patients. So, I mean, I think this is an excellent area where total brain is meeting Kerna's needs with respect to that. Maybe you could describe total brain's solution with respect to CBT. Yeah, sure. So, so uh, your total brain is, we've got the, the cognitive assessments, of course, which are highly interconnected to depression and negativity bias. To track it, the CBT is just an online light CBT, so helping patients just reframe their negative thought patterns. And so the evidence from the literature, as you know, Rich, is that obviously it's less so if somebody's really severe, but if they're mild or moderate, online CBT support, as you just said, is scalable and can just help people just begin to just reframe and reappraise there may be their sort of a little bit out of control negativity, which is kind of what depression is at its core. It's interesting that the data shows that even use of CBT five times or more online in total brain can decrease people's symptoms related to depression. Although that's not a clinical study, it's people who have self-reported symptoms of depression. But nevertheless, it just highlights how granular, how specific, how helpful these kind of online tools have the potential to be. But the literature is pretty strong now that online CBT has got a real role to play. So yeah, that is one of the 50 or so tools that your brain have. I'm delighted you're seeing value in that. Well, that's just incredible. The other thing I would like to highlight is we see a lot of people that are in rural and remote areas. So they may drive an hour or an hour and a half or two hours even to come see us in clinic. But they can't do that every time they need to see somebody. So your CBT tools are directly applicable to those people as well, you know, saving them tons and tons of driving time. Oh, that's fascinating. So really is the takeaway message for somebody with depression that they are now the means to act as a sort of ongoing quarterback for them and really help attune to their personal needs along their continuum of care, basically. So rather than a one and done or a silo or just giving somebody a pill, that there's this sort of attunement to how they are fluctuating and, and just helping them along the way kind of continually. And CBT is one example, because there's a lot of downtime that people have where they aren't able to see a doctor. So the online sort of support seems to be gaining in increasing impact.
Absolutely. I mean, the people that are living with depression are living it every day, right? They're, they're not living it once every four weeks. And so they now have people and tools that are in the trenches with them. And I think a big part of it is that they feel less alone. You're not just sending them off to suffer with it alone. They have a team behind them that's supporting them, as you said, across the continuum of care. Wow, that's such a great summary, Rich. Thank you so much. I've never heard it put better, to be honest. I'd like to go to the second use case, Rich, because it's one that I think is really powerful. You know, we all know that many people are fearful of how much depression and cardiac disease are interconnected. And so many people have cardiac problem, get depression. What's the sort of use case there for depression and cardiac disease in collaborative care? Yeah. And I think this is a great overlap question with the chronic care management or chronic disease management. So as you stated, you know, the the numbers are quite striking. So to 50% of people after acute myocardial infarctions will have depression large numbers of patients with heart failure have depression up to 30 percent of the people that have heart failure will have cognitive impairment as well so there's such a strong connection between the heart and the brain so one initial treatment because people don't feel well or can feel depressed if their heart disease is not well controlled is focusing on controlling their heart disease so measuring their weight uh, on a daily basis at home so that if their weight's going up and they're retaining fluid you can treat that making sure they're on all appropriate guideline-based therapy for their heart failure, taking care of their exercise and diet, et cetera. And that helps, right? If you treat the heart, it helps treat the brain. But in particular, making sure your blood pressure is well-controlled, you're on the right medications. And I think, again, the application of the mental health side to help control blood pressure, I know there's tools in total brain to do that, as well as the depression that might go along with these cardiac diseases. It's a really good example. And we're collaborating with the American Heart Association. And in fact, one of their first projects they discussed with us was blood pressure. And it was fascinating to me. My PhD was in serum lipids in the heart before I switched to the brain. And cardiologists really have got a very solid model. And so they want solid metrics that they can really feel comfortable with. So it's fascinating to me that there are this one tool that I think maybe our listeners have heard from me many times that that sort of called resonant breathing, which is breathing at six breaths per minute, which strengthen your blood pressure. And I really, you know, fascinated by that, that this 2,500 year old idea, Rich, of breathing slowly, which everybody knows about, but that there's a specific breathing rate that can help strengthen the sort of reflex that controls your blood pressure and also just make you calmer and be helpful to reduce stress. The evidence for it is measuring heart rate variability. So the cardiologist, that's speaking their language, and it brings a sort of more natural bridge to cardiology and behavior health change and depression in addition to medication. So it's a powerful kind of bolt that holds the horse to the cart potentially or illustrates the potential brain-body connection very, very simply and very nicely. So it's a great example of heart problems, cognitive problems. And of course, with cognitive problems, you lose flexibility of thinking. And that's a big challenge for that and a big risk for depression. So that confluence of pieces is very striking. You know, Evian, I would say that that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to collaborate with you at this particular time in history where, you know, 
we actually have the technologies to be able to do this and monitor people remotely and connect with them remotely, which we have not had before. We also have the data that you're providing us as well with these hard metrics to bring science with compassion and technology. It's such an exciting, incredible time. And listening to the the hard metrics around heart variability and breathing and, and knowing that you know, it's not some airy fairy metaphysical thing. It's it's hard science connecting you to your personal experience. It's an incredible thing. Yeah, it is a fascinating time. And gee, it only took forty years to get here, Rich. It was it was a, it was a blink of an eye. <laughs> so so, so um, that's, that's a great example. So so, Rich, the other two use cases that I'd like to end off on this is this really really challenging issue of depression and Alzheimer's and I know you know you're a geriatrician and this is just just so your your wheelhouse help us understand what's realistic and what are the benefits to collaborative care in depression plus Alzheimer's well depression and and the dementias in general is a a bit of a complex topic because depression in and of itself can cause some cognitive slowing some attentional deficits, some speed of information processing problems. So oftentimes when we're looking at somebody that has depression and cognitive impairment, the first question is, is the depression causing the cognitive impairment? And if we treat and optimize their mental health, can we improve the cognitive functioning that the patient has? However, at the same time, depression in older adults is a harbinger many times to the damage that's being done from a neurodegenerative process or vascular insults to the brain. And so it's not infrequent that people will present first with some depression and mild cognitive symptoms and then progress on. And so to full-blown dementia or major neurocognitive disorder. So having cognitive tools to assess over time what happens to that patient, if it's a slow and steady decline, we can be more certain that it is in fact a dementia and we can treat the dementia with different medications that can improve cognitive function and improve other psychiatric outcomes such as mood or anxiety, but we target therapy differently. So, you know, if we use the cognitive assessment tools, such as those that are present in total brain, it helps us to be more specific and cater therapy in a more precise way to the patient based on on what they have. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. I mean, it's such a challenging area, you know, mild cognitive impairment, and I think it's 14% of people per year with mild cognitive impairment just slide into a sort of Alzheimer's. It's huge. The numbers are frightening and massive. And of course, there's no treatment per se, but what you've really helped clarify in a really straightforward way is that, however, these other factors that are more tractable to treatment, like cognitive factors, should be identified early. That's a huge game changer if you can find it early and then uh, do something about that while you, of course, can do whatever is possible, whatever can be done in uh, in the awareness and stress reduction. And there's a lot of overclaims about Alzheimer's. I'm just not aware of, of anything that sort of can be called a treatment yet. It's It's a challenge still for all of us. I think this brings us back as well to the the comprehensiveness of the care and the overlap between behavioral health and other comorbidities. And so the things that you can do for mild cognitive impairment or trying to prevent any cognitive impairment from worsening are the more physical activity lifestyle things. So staying physically active, staying socially active and cognitively active, 
maintaining your blood vessel health by treating blood pressure, diabetes, blood uh, lipid levels, avoiding smoking, avoiding alcohol, and eating right. You know, so these are all things that the chronic care management side of the platform can help to address to try and prevent further cognitive decline in an evidence-based fashion. Yeah, what a beautiful summary. I mean, everything that can be done can hopefully slow the process. And uh, last but not least, and this is, of course, the hardest of all, Rich, so I'd love to hear an example. You know, as we get older, it's just shocking how, understandably, many things start sort of failing. And so the challenge of these multiple comorbidities that occur in some people and lead people to take too many medications and they start interacting and it becomes a problem. What is a use case in terms of you now looking at that brain-body full connection of the adaptive, highly interconnected system that starts failing? How do you help kind of optimize the best outcome in those situations? Yeah, absolutely. This is a fascinating topic because you know, I'll give you an example. So I, I had a patient once uh, who had some mild cognitive impairment. She was obese and had obesity hypoventilation syndrome, as well as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD or emphysema, some people would know it as, and uh, chronic back pain. She was falling frequently. And that was actual presenting complaint where she was referred to me for falls. So she didn't, hadn't carried the diagnosis of COPD coming in, but when I auscultated her lungs or listened to her lungs, there was diffuse wheezing. She had a 40-pack year smoking history. Uh, you know, We did oxygen saturations and they were low. So we got pulmonary function tests. We started treating her with puffers and her breathing improved. So she was able to exercise. And when she was able to exercise, she was able to lose some weight. She was able to strengthen her core with a physiotherapist. And when her core was strengthened, her back pain improved remarkably. So all of the pain medications that she was on were reduced in dose, right? So it's this cascade of effects of multimorbid state where you really need to do a comprehensive assessment, categorize each one of them, prioritize the highest yield topics to assess first, and then come back on a regular basis. And so she was quite sad, obviously. She could not get out of her house. She was falling all of the time. She was socially isolated. So in treating her multimorbid medical state, getting her off medications that caused cognitive slowing and perhaps made her depressed, getting her exercising more and getting her out of the house. And the predominant treatment was her lung disease. So it's, it's a great example of how you know treating that multimorbid state directly impacts mood and overall quality of life for patients. Well, well, you know, you you all deserve a medal for what you do, uh, many medals, you know, from Andreas onwards. It's just extraordinary what you're doing. You know, Total Brain was never just a science company. It was always about applied science, and it's just such a privilege to see this applied collaborative care and that we have such a, a nice role to help expand support and you know this initiative. And I just thank you so much, Rich, for your articulate and patient and uh, magnanimous sharing, really, with our listeners, with us today, and helping us see that there is now new hope for chronic care management and for depression in particular today that we were talking about, to personalize the treatment and bring the pieces together in such 
groundbreaking ways. Thank you so much, Rich. Evian, it's my sincere pleasure to be a part of this podcast. And I would not want to underemphasize the great amount of work that you've done over such a long period of time to bring the science to the masses. And, you know, we at Kerna love working with best in class uh, people and solutions. And, you know, we wouldn't have the capacity to make a such a scalable solution if, if we couldn't collaborate with people such as yourself. So thank you for the 40 years of work, right? I must say, and there are hundreds of people I can show you involved in, and the Total Brain team is just unbelievable. So I really appreciate that, Rich, but so appreciate working with you. You have no idea. I hope we'll have many more of these podcasts, and thanks again, Rich. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.